Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. How many of you have seen the new Mary Poppins movie already? Mary Poppins Returns, okay? I have yet to see it. My wife and uh, my daughters went to go see it with their grandmothers, and so they really enjoyed it. But I'm actually looking forward to seeing this, in part because I was thrilled when I heard that they cast Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins. Uh, She just is a great fit for this, and I've appreciated her as an actor. And one of the things that I appreciate about her is her range. Uh, She is really good in both a science fiction action flick and in musical which are two genres I happen to enjoy, uh, incidentally. Um, And so when I heard her being in this, I thought, this is going to be great. Now, I recently learned that Emily Blunt is actually uh, an unlikely candidate for being an actor at all. Growing up, she struggled with a stutter. She, She couldn't actually get through a conversation without stuttering. And so she hardly talked at all. She kept really quiet because she was so embarrassed by that. They tried all sorts of different things for her. She went to speech therapists and relaxation coaches and all sorts of different things, but nothing helped. But then in junior high, she had a teacher who said, why don't you try out for the school play? Which seems like a really, really bad idea for someone with a stutter. She thought it was a terrible idea. She actually said, you know, she couldn't get through saying no. So she just sort of shook her head and said, I don't want to do that. And for her, she, she was like, this is a nightmare. She struggled with vowels. And so having a name like Emily was just, un- she couldn't introduce herself. So she's like, I'm not getting up on stage. Her teacher actually convinced her. And amazingly, through some hard work, some focus, she managed to get through her part without stuttering at all. And that actually began a, a pursuit of acting because she realized this was actually a way for her to face this limitation and actually learn to overcome it. It actually helped her with her stutter. Now, she still stutters sometimes. It's still a struggle for her. It's gone down a little bit, but it flares up every now and then. But what that means is that every day when she goes to her job, to her calling to be an actress, she's got to face her limitations. And if she doesn't have incredible resilience, that's going to defeat her. It's going to overcome her. We are in the second week of a series that we are calling What It Takes to Lead. We're looking at the life of one of the greatest leaders in history, Moses. Moses was like the George Washington of Israel. He's this larger-than-life figure, this founding figure, and he's this great hero for the entire history of Israel. But in the first five Old Testament books, we get this up-close-and-personal look at Moses' life. And what we have is this honest look at an ordinary, flawed human being who, much like Emily Blunt, actually had a speech impediment. But God used this ordinary person to do incredible things. That's the reason why we're studying his life. It's helpful for any of us who are in any kind of leadership role, no matter what it is, whether you're a business owner or an older sibling or a coach for a team or a community group leader or just someone who wants to influence their friends. Learning from the life of Moses is an incredible place to start. Even if you are not a follower of Christ, you don't know what you think about God, there's lots to be learned from this great leader, Moses. Now, each week in this series, we are looking at a different trait that Moses had that we ought to learn and grow in. And today, the trait we're looking at is resilience, resilience in the face of setbacks. You might also call this tenacity or perseverance or grit. Now, this is one of the most important traits a leader can develop, although I kind of wish it wasn't. There are lots of leadership traits that are actually really fun to exercise, you know, inspiring people. It's really fun to do. Uh, Creativity, generating new ideas, that's enjoyable. Uh, Building trust in relationships can be really rewarding. But resilience, 
Not so much. You know what resilience means? It means you get punched in the face and then you stand up to get punched one more time. You, you know what you get if you show resilience in the face of an obstacle? Another obstacle. It, it can be about as annoying as the Chumbawamba song about resilience. I get knocked down, but I get up again. No, you're never gonna keep me down. Now, I added that because some of you are going to have that stuck in your head for the rest of the weekend. <laughs> and that way you'll remember the sermon, which is a good thing. But you know what happens if you don't have resilience? Nothing. Nothing. If you don't have resilience, you get nowhere. Leadership is taking people to a place that they have not been before. And if you don't have resilience, the first roadblock on your path is going to stop you in your tracks and you'll never get there. We, we've got to have Resilience. It means taking a, a long view of things. Uh, in her TED Talk that has been viewed over 8 million times, the psychologist Angela Lee Duckworth said this. She defined grit as living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. Like a marathon, not a sprint. A sprint. And according to her research, this uh, trait of resilience or grit is actually one of the most important things that makes people successful. It is more important than your level of intelligence or your level of skill, your physical health, your family income, other things that make a difference. This one is the most important. In our passage today, we're going to be looking at three different kinds of obstacles that Moses faced and that all leaders face. And we're going to look and find out where Moses found the resilience to keep going in the face of them. Now, if you are taking notes in our app or on uh, the weekly welcome, uh, we're going to do things just slightly different than normal today. We've got three points in there, and we're going to go through the three points twice, okay? So we're going to go through them once, and we're going to talk about what the obstacles are, and then we're going to go back through them again and fill in the other blanks, and those will be where, we, where Moses found the resilience. So it's a little adventure. I know some of you are like, oh, I'm freaking out by this, okay? But you'll be all right. Um, here's the first challenge that Moses faced. The question is this, where do you turn when your circumstances turn on you. Where do you turn when your circumstances turn on you? If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus to chapter five. The, the story picks up right where we left off last week. Pastor Jim taught about Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. And, and at the time, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And so God called Moses to go to the king of Egypt, to the Pharaoh, to say that famous line, let my people go. Now, Moses is a bit hesitant about this, but God convinces him to go. And so Moses and his brother Aaron show up and they confront Pharaoh. And we're going to read what happens the very first time this happens. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. In ancient Egypt, they believed in a pantheon of different gods and goddesses, Ra and Osiris and Isis and Horus and so many more. And among all of these gods, Pharaoh himself was considered divine. So when Pharaoh hears Moses say, the Lord, and you can notice it's in all caps, that means it's actually the personal name of God, Yahweh, is commanding you to do something, Pharaoh says, well, I've never heard that name. I, that's not one of my gods. In fact, as one of the gods myself, I resent taking orders from this upstart wannabe deity, especially if he's taken away my free labor. So no, it's not going to happen. Now, Pharaoh doesn't just say no. He actually makes things harder. He wants to punish the Israelites for daring to ask for this. So in verse 6, it says this. 
That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let's go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. It's a classic example of injustice. There's a system that is set up to benefit a powerful few. And it makes life incredibly difficult. In fact, it's impossible to succeed for the group that is being pressed down. And then when they fail, they turn around and they blame that group for their failure. They're lazy, they're not intelligent, they're inferior. And this is how most injustice works throughout history. Think of uh, Jim Crow laws in our own country. So Moses and Aaron, this is what they're facing. They're up against this unjust system, this unyielding authority. And when they go to confront it, things actually just get worse. Now, I don't know about your situations. You may not be confronting a corrupt system or a, a, a stubborn leader. But whatever you're confronting, you run into circumstances where you say, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know how to overcome this. There's no realistic way for me to just figure this out. This is beyond me. It could be all sorts of things. You lose a client. A key member of your team has a personal crisis and they're out. Costs go up. A, 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 the city won't approve your new project. It's incredibly discouraging. You gotta ask the question, okay, where do I find resilience to keep going when I hit circumstances that have turned against me? But what happens when it's not just circumstances? Here, here's the second challenge. How do you stay resilient when your people turn on you? How do you stay resilient when your people turn on you? Now, most leaders, when you think about you know, leadership, you expect to face obstacles and challenges. But what you imagine is this, okay, I'm gonna have this great team of people beside me. We're gonna go into this together and we are gonna figure this out. We're, we're gonna face that challenge, but I'll have some people with me. But what happens when your team actually becomes part of the problem? After Pharaoh made life harder for the Israelites, the Hebrew leaders go to Pharaoh and they complain and they say, this isn't fair. And of course, nothing happens. And so this is what happens in verse 20 when they go back to Moses. When the Israelite leaders left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. See, when the Israelites heard that Moses had been sent to rescue them, they, they were thrilled. They were overjoyed. Now, it doesn't say this, but you get the impression that they figured that it was going to be a, sort of a quick deal. You know, Moses is going to go in. He's going to do a little let my people go. And Aaron's going to do some flashy miracles. And Pharaoh's going to say, huh, okay, yeah, you convinced me. Go ahead. And they're going to be in the promised land by like next Friday. You know, they're, they're, they figured this is going to be easy. God's going to do this, right? But then when things go from bad to worse... They realize, whoa, 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 this is not what we signed up for. This is not what we expected. And so they turn on Moses and Aaron and say, this is your problem. We, we were, we, it was bad enough before it, and now look what you've done. Many of us have a false belief about leadership. We, we assume that if someone is a good leader, it's going to be enjoyable to follow them. In, in our minds, we figure that's sort of what it means to be a good leader, right? Like if they're good at leading, it's going to make it easier for me to follow them. But that's not actually true. And if you think about it for a second, you realize why this is. Think about this question. Why do we actually need leaders? Like, why are leaders necessary? It's because we need to go places that we won't wander to on our own. 
We need someone to help us get to places that we need to go, places we even want to go. But getting there is difficult. It is costly. It, it is challenging to go to that place. If it were easy to get there on our own, you would have gotten there already and you wouldn't need someone to help lead you there. This means that eventually, even a good leader, or especially a good leader, is gonna do something that you don't like, that makes you uncomfortable. Your counselor is gonna make you own up to your own behavior. Your boss is gonna require you to learn something new that you've never done before. Your coach is gonna push you harder than you wanna be pushed. And these are actually good things for us, but since they make us uncomfortable and they're not the things we're really asking for, we have a tendency to blame or criticize leaders when we get to the parts that we don't like. Now it's tricky here because there are bad and even abusive leaders who actually do need to be criticized for the way they're leading. Not everybody is a Moses. Some people are Pharaohs. In fact, most leaders are a mix of the two. But we do need to remember that just because a leader makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean they're doing a bad job. I mean, if making things easy for the people following you is the measure of a good leader, the worst leader in history is Jesus Christ. And when you're a leader, when you're in a role of responsibility like that, the hard thing is to accept the reality that you're gonna have to do things that will make your people unhappy with you. Your kids will not always like your discipline. They're not gonna be like, oh yeah, thank you for doing that. Your friends will not always enjoy when you have to point out blind spots. Your students will not always appreciate your homework assignments. The members of your community group will not always appreciate when you hold them accountable to apply what you're studying. And it stinks that people don't like this, but these are actually a good part of leadership. Uh, I recently heard a very insightful and kind of depressing definition of leadership, and it's this. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. Now, those guys have an awfully cheery expression for such a downer quote, but you know, there they are. You've got to disappoint your people at a rate they can absorb. Not, not too fast that they can't handle it, but you still have to do some disappointing. And if you're a leader, this means, unfortunately, there are inevitably going to be times when people resist your leadership. So how do you stay resilient when that happens? But here's the hardest challenge to face. How do you stay resilient when your heart turns on you, when your heart turns on you. In this story, the biggest struggle Moses faces is not what happens when he stands before Pharaoh. It's not what happens when he stands before the angry Israelite leaders. It's what happens when he stands before God. In verse 22, this little phrase, it says, Moses returned to the Lord. Very important. Over the next couple of chapters, chapter six and seven, Moses has this long conversation with God and he pours out his heart to God. He expresses his frustration and his doubt and his anger and his insecurity about what he's been asked to do. And this is actually where our biggest battle is fought as well, in the place of solitude, when we are alone with God and our insecurities. This is true even if you're not really a praying person, even if you wouldn't consider yourself religious or believe in God, this is still your biggest challenge as a leader. What are you gonna do with your own heart? What do you do with not just what's out here, but what's happening in here? I read a lot of leadership writing and it's very interesting that many articles and, and books in kind of modern leadership advice, even completely non-religious sorts of books, you will find people describing practices and habits that sound a lot like the practices and habits that religions have taught forever. Things like journaling and meditation and gratitude. 
You gotta ask, why is it that even these secular leadership experts are promoting these sorts of practices? It's because people are realizing that leadership takes a toll on your soul, and you gotta deal with that. That there are so many leaders who put up a confident front, they look successful on the outside, but on the inside, they're falling apart. They, They feel like failures and imposters. They're thinking, how in the world did I get here? And how am I going to get through this without people realizing I have no idea what I'm doing? When that happens, you've got to know how to deal with it. When your heart rises up and it turns on you, what are you going to do? If you don't do something about it, you'll lose your nerve. You won't have resilience to face your challenges. This is what almost happens to Moses. In his prayer with God, he's really honest. Verse 22 says this. Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. Moses is saying, my circumstances have turned on me. You said this would work, but it's just gotten worse. Why won't you do something? Verse 12 in chapter 6 says this. If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Moses is saying, the people have turned on me. Like, if I can't convince the good guys, how am I going to get the bad guys to change their mind? Chapter 6, verse 30, Moses says this. Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? He gets down to his lack of confidence, his fear that he's just not enough, that he doesn't have what it takes, that God chose the wrong guy for this job. And he's saying, God, my heart has turned on me. What do I do? You ever been there? All right, let's go back through those three points again. Let's look at those challenges to see where Moses found the resilience to keep going. Uh, Look at chapter six, verse one. Uh, Moses complains that things only got worse, and this is what God says. He says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of, of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Notice the emphasis on God's might here. Here's what this means. When your circumstances turn on you, turn to God's power. When your circumstances turn on you, turn to God's power. Where does God's power show up in this story? Well, over the next several chapters, Moses goes back to Pharaoh again and again. Ten times he goes back. And each time, same scenario. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, not a chance. And then there's a plague. Now, even if you aren't familiar with the Bible, you have probably seen some images of these plagues. The Nile River turns to blood. Frogs and flies and gnats swarm over the land and fire and hail fall from heaven and locusts destroy the crops and sores break out on people's skin and there's darkness everywhere and it's just chaos. But after each one of these plagues, Pharaoh says, okay, fine, I relent, go, get out of here. But then when the plague clears up, he immediately changes his mind and says, no, I'm not letting you go. But still, Moses and Aaron keep going back. Where do they find the resilience to do this again and again? This is an impossible task. They're not going to convince Pharaoh just, you know, talking to him. So why do they keep doing it? Because they're convinced that God's power is actually with them. And they're right. Eventually, God sets them free. Now, if you're like me when you're reading this story, you're thinking, Okay, God, why'd you take so long? Like 10 plagues, 10 plagues. God doesn't need 10 plagues. He doesn't need one plague. He could have just snapped his fingers and it could have been done like that. Why is he taking so long? You ever ask that question in your own situations? 
Well, I don't know about your particular situation, but I do know about this one. God tells us why he stretches things out here. Look at chapter seven, verse five. He says, this is, if, by doing this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. You see, God has multiple goals for this event. One of the goals is to set the people free. But he's got another goal that he's trying to accomplish, which is demonstrate to the people, both to Egypt and to Israel, that he actually is the true God. You know why Egypt was such an unjust place? It's because they had the wrong God on the throne. Pharaoh thought he was a God, the people believed it, and so everything in society was built around this, and it warped their society. Everything became about serving the needs of this so-called God. The reason God wants to be first in your life is not because he's got an ego and he just needs you to stoke it. He's gonna feel so bad if you don't praise him and talk about how great he is and put him first. That's not the reason. The reason is that if you put anything else first in your life, all of your priorities will start to get out of whack and life will start to unravel. If you build your life around money, it will destroy your relationships. If you build your life around your own comfort, you will ignore the needs of others. If you build your life around your safety, you will never take a risk for what is right. Idols destroy lives. And this is true, not just for individuals, but for entire cultures and societies. Whatever a culture worships puts first, if it is not the God of love and justice, that will twist the values of that culture. You see, God doesn't just want to free the slaves here. He wants to expose the idolatry that caused the slavery. He, he wants to show you that this God that you worship cannot save you, it can only enslave you. And so that's why God takes his time, not immediately freeing the Israelites from slavery. He had multiple purposes. Now, in your situation, I don't know why it feels like God's power isn't showing up when you want it to or he's taking his time. But I do know this, God always has more than one purpose in any given situation. Most of the time though, he does not tell us what all those purposes are. It might be because he wants to help you grow and see new things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. It might be because he wants to set you up for something in the future you don't know you need yet. It might be as you're praying, God, would you do this for me? God knows about this situation that's interconnected with yours, that if he answers your prayer this way, he's going to have to answer this prayer that way, and that's interconnected with somebody else's life and somebody else's life, and there's this chain of, of events that if he does one thing over here, he's got to adjust all these things over there, and if he explained all of that to you, your brain would explode, and he says, you know what, just let me handle it, okay? We don't always know what God's purposes are in every situation, but here's what we do know. God is at work. He is. And he uses his power for good purposes. His intentions overall are to rescue and redeem and to free. I also know this. No matter what it looks like God is doing, God never, ever wants you to hesitate to say, God, would you move? Would you act? Would you use your power in this situation? Most of us fall into on one side or the other with two different mistakes about asking for God's power. Some of us, we presume God's power. We think, look, if I ask for something, God should do this. He's powerful. Why wouldn't he do this? Now, the problem is most of us are not like Moses, okay? We have not had a word directly from God where God says, here's exactly what I'm going to do, and we can count on him doing that, okay? So we can't presume, okay, just because I think this is how it should go, that's how it should go. Most of us, though, are not presuming on God's power. Most of us are making the other mistake, the opposite mistake, which is ignoring God's power. We go through life as if it's all dependent on us, and we never stop to say, God, would you move? We live life as if we don't have a personal relationship with the one who made the stars and made the earth and made the oceans and made you and holds every atom in his hand. 
Like that's someone we actually know personally. And we should feel like kids with their parents. You know what? Like kids with their parents, they don't always get everything that they ask for, but they should never feel embarrassment or shame or hesitation to say, mom, dad, would you help me? Dad, could I, I could use a hand here. I can't handle this on my own. No kid should ever feel like they can't do that. And you should never feel like that with God. You should always feel like I can go, God, you have power. Would you use it in this situation? The, the book of James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And most of us, are not asking. Think about the leadership situations that you're in, in your workplace, your home, your friendships, the community. And I want you to be honest with yourself. How often do you pray for God's power in that circumstance? And when you pray, do you anticipate that God might actually do something when you pray? And when nothing changes, do you just give up and stop praying? Or do you keep coming back like Jesus told us to do? Say, God, I need you to move. I need you to move. You don't actually have to be working in a Christian organization or be doing some explicitly Christian activity to bring prayer into your leadership. You might not be able to huddle up with all your coworkers and have a time of prayer, but you can be praying day in and day out for the decisions you make and the struggles you're facing and the situations that even other people are going through. When you are leading in a situation that is outside of your control, the only way to be resilient is to turn to God's power. But what do you do, though, if the problem isn't just circumstance? It's people. It's people. When your people turn on you, turn to God's compassion. When your people turn on you, turn to God's compassion. When you are criticized, especially as a leader, it is really easy to get angry and resentful. It's tempting when people turn on you to turn on them. You blame them for their response. Something's wrong with them. They're the problem. It's their fault that they're not following my lead. And for Moses, all throughout his life, we're going to see this is a temptation. He has a tendency to blow up and get angry at the people because they're resenting his leadership. But in this conversation with God, God actually offers a different perspective on what's going on here. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. He said, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. And I have remembered my covenant. That, that phrase, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites. That, that is such a perfect window into the heart of God. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like I am suffering, I am hurting here, and no one knows about it? You can think even just in a literal, physical way. You're, you're in your room, on your bed, moaning because you're in pain, you're sick, and you just wish someone would help. Or it might be something more secret than that where you feel like, I, I have never shared this with someone, but I feel overwhelmed by this. I want you to know that God hears your groaning. And not only does he hear it, he cares about it. And not only does he care about it, he responds, he wants to do something about it. God's attentiveness to our suffering and his desire to do something about it, this is what we call God's compassion. And God opens up his heart of compassion to Moses, in part to say this, hey, Moses, do you see the people like I see them? I know that they're stubborn and they've said some harsh things, but do you understand how difficult this is for them? Think about how vulnerable and afraid they feel. There is a lot on the line for them in, in what's going on here. The people aren't resisting you because they're sinning. They're resisting because they're suffering. When Moses actually goes back to the people to give the message from God again, verse 9 says this, Moses reported to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. This describes so many people. 
They're being offered something that they need, even something that they want, but they cannot receive it. They cannot walk down that path because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Let me give you a sort of a light example of this, okay? This is a scene that happens far too often in the Kenan household, and I'd like to admit, uh, but it's pretty typical, okay? It's bedtime with the kids at the Kenan house. So what usually way it starts is I say, okay, time to go to bed, and the kids run upstairs, and they're giggling and laughing. I hear them run up the stairs. About five minutes later, I, I go up to check to see, you know, did they actually get ready for bed? And there they are in their room and they're lying on the ground just laughing and they're still dressed in their day clothes. They haven't put on their pajamas. The teeth aren't brushed. None of the normal things have happened. And I say, okay, guys, it's time. We actually have to do this. Let's go. Let's get the pajamas on. And inevitably, the five-year-old flops on her bed and goes, ugh, I don't want to. And I say, okay, well, no, we got it. We got to do it. It's time to put on your pajamas. I can't put on my pajamas. I say, well, you you need to. Why why don't you want to put on your pajamas? I'm too tired. And I'm like, exactly. So let's put on your pajamas so you can go to sleep. And she's like, I just want to lie on my bed. It's like, I want you to lie in your bed for a very long time. So let's put on your pajamas. Let's do this. It's too hard. Now, I would tell you about more of the conversation, but it starts to get embarrassing because she gets stubborn and I get stubborn and it ain't pretty. And so, uh, <laughs> but then I remember this. She's five years old and being a little person in a big person's world all day long is a pretty tiring thing. And she has worn herself out at preschool and running around the house and playing dress up and doing all of these things. And at 7.30 at night, she is out of resources. And this is genuinely hard for her. And I am giving her the biggest to-do list of her day. You got to brush your teeth, change your pajamas, put the stuff in the hamper, sit still while I read this Bible story, don't mess with your sister, all of these things. And she's tapped out. And so that doesn't change what I actually have to get her to do. All those things still need to happen, but it does change how I approach her with it. I have a heart of compassion to say, I see why this is hard for you. And so I have empathy and I have a little more kindness, a little more patience that this is a difficult thing. Now, I realize that in most leadership situations, it is not the same as ordering a five-year-old around. We are working with uh, mature adult people who we have to persuade and motivate and keep accountable for things. But even so, there's gonna be resistance to that. People aren't gonna wanna do what they need to do. But it's important to remember that most people don't resist change or accountability simply because they're stubborn or because they don't like you or they wanna make your life harder. They resist out of fear or discomfort, or uncertainty. They, they may not say it this way, but that resistance is their heart saying, I've never done that before, and I don't want to be embarrassed by my ignorance. Or, or maybe it's them saying, I already feel overwhelmed, and you're asking me to do one more thing. Or, or it might be, my relationships with my coworkers are already a little bit strained, and what you're asking me to do is just going to make tensions worse. Or it's their heart saying, you know what, that sounds really risky. And if this goes south, I don't want to be the one on the hook. Or it might be their heart saying, my personal life is already really stressful. So there are some hard things going on and it's coming out sideways here. It's not related to this situation. Again, you're still going to need to lead people where they need to go. You're going to need to make them uncomfortable sometimes. But when you do, having this attitude of compassion lets you lead like God with patience and kindness not out of frustration. In some ways, this makes the task of leading a lot harder. You, you cannot just have a hard heart of stone. You can't uh, just not care how your leadership stresses people out. But at the same time, you can't let your empathy for people prevent you from stretching them in uncomfortable ways. 
that leaders need to develop both a thick skin and a soft heart. Thick skin and a soft heart. When your people turn on you, turn to God's compassion. But here's the hard one. How do you deal with your own heart? What do you do when challenges shake you to the core? When your heart turns on you, turn to God's call. When your heart turns on you, turn to God's call. Two times in the conversation between Moses and God, Moses raises the same objection. He says, I speak with faltering lips. I stutter. I get stage fright. I'm bad with words. If this is a public speaking gig, I am not your guy. This is the same objection that Moses raised back at the burning bush when God called him. And even though God addressed it there, it still lingers. That's true for us. Just because you talk through your insecurities one time doesn't mean that they're gone overnight. So what do you do when your heart keeps whispering to you, you don't have what it takes? You're not enough for this. Well, the first time Moses brings up this objection, something really strange happens in the passage. There's kind of an intermission in the conversation. It's it's really odd. Chapter 6, verse 12, up through that point, Moses and God are talking. But then there's a break, and the conversation picks up again in verse 28 as if nothing ever happened. So what happens in those 16 verses in between in the middle of this conversation? It's actually a genealogy of all things. It's a list of names, a, a family tree. Now, for you and I, modern readers, genealogies are just confusing and boring, but for ancient readers, they were fascinating. And the point of a genealogy in the Bible is not to tell you something about this list of names. It was to use that list of names to tell you something about the main character in the story that you're reading. So you've got to ask the question, what does this genealogy tell us about Moses right now? Now, there are two things to know about the genealogy. First is this. It's a genealogy of the tribe of Levi. Now, the Levites, are that, that's actually the tribe that Moses and Aaron are from, and they become very significant in the future of Israel. These are the only tribe, the only tribe in all of Israel where the priests come from. That means the only people who are allowed to go into the presence of God and offer sacrifices are this tribe. Very important. Second thing to note about this family tree is that it does not stop with Moses and Aaron. It actually continues several generations of their family after them, chronicling the future of their family. So here's where this is going. The flow of the passage goes like this. Moses says, God, I'm a failure. Then there's a genealogy. And then it cuts back in and he says, God, I'm a failure. So why did this sandwich get put in here? What is this telling us? Here's what this is like. Okay, imagine you are watching a movie about the childhood of Neil Armstrong. Now, I found out last night that there actually was a you know, movie about Neil Armstrong that came out last year. I didn't hear about it, so I made up this illustration. This is not about that movie. This is Clayton's movie in my own mind, all right? <laughs> Biography of Neil Armstrong. And there is a scene of him as a child climbing a tree. And he's like four feet off the ground. And he is terrified of heights. He is hugging that branch and crying out, help, somebody help me, somebody help me. Now, in the middle of this scene of terror, Cut to Neil Armstrong stepping into a rocket. The rocket blasting off into space. Him planting his footprint on the moon. Cut back to, "Uh somebody help me, somebody help me, I'm stuck in the tree. Now, that's a super weird movie scene. That's why I'm not a director. But you would get the point if that happened, right? The point would be this. As you are watching this scared child who's afraid of heights, do not forget who he becomes. Do not forget where he is going and what he will accomplish. That's what this genealogy is all about. It shows us this scared leader, Moses. Look at what becomes of him and his family. How does this help us become resilient leaders? Because it reminds us that even when we feel completely inadequate in this moment, 
God already knows where we go and what we become in the future. That this is why we can keep moving and fighting now because we know this is not the end of the story. Okay, I'm gonna do something awful. I'm gonna spoil a movie. So here's the warning. If you have not seen the last Avengers movie, Infinity War, okay? Like it's got a crazy ending, okay? Cover your ears if you don't wanna hear it. I will wave like this when I'm done, okay? But a lot of you saw it. It made like $2 billion, so I'm not really worried about this, okay? So here is the thing. You guys covered your ears, okay? That movie, this superhero movie, after 10 years of Marvel telling stories, how does it end? The good guys lose and the bad guys win. Now, here's the question I have for you. Why are more people not angry about that? I'll tell you why. Because there's a sequel coming out next summer, and most of you are going to see it. So if this happened, if after 10 years of telling superhero stories, Marvel said, okay, here's how it ends. The bad guys win, and it's over. We're not telling any more stories. We'd be furious. We'd be like, we spent all that money and time in doing this, and the bad guys win? Really? but there's way too much money on the line for Marvel to end there, okay? So they're gonna make more money and we're gonna find out the rest of the story. And we say, it's okay to know that there's failure at this point because there's victory that's coming. We know it, we know it. Okay, you can uncover your ears if you don't wanna hear anything more. This is true of us. Most of us lack resilience because we're convinced that there's no sequel to this moment right now, that this is the end of the story. That's the conclusion, end of the movie. But that isn't true for our lives. The setback you are facing right now does not determine your future. It is not your destiny. God is not done telling your story or the story of the world, and he has called you to play a part in that story. Second time Moses brings up his faltering lips, here's how God responds in chapter seven, verse one. It says, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now that's that's a very strange phrase. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. What, what does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Moses suddenly becomes all-powerful or all-knowing or worthy of worship or something like that. What it means is that God, God has given Moses an assignment to function like God for Pharaoh. So whatever Moses tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh has to obey as if God said it. Moses is given God-like authority in front of this man who thinks he is a God. Now notice how God says this phrase. He says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Whatever Moses is in this moment, however much authority or power or skill that he has, God has made him to be like that. It is not Moses' skill or intelligence or personality that God said, oh, I really, I need that. I got to use that. You, you will be useful to me. Remember what we talked about last week. Moses was a nobody, but God can take a nobody and make him something incredible. This is so important. Moses looks at his abilities or lack thereof and says, look, this is what defines me. This is who I am. I'm nobody. And it undermines his resilience. But God looks at Moses and says, "Uh uh-uh, no. You, You do not get to define who you are. I get to define who you are. And this is who I say you are. I have chosen you. I have called you. I am with you. You are mine. That's who you are. There's an old saying that preachers have been using forever, and there's a reason it sticks around, because it's true. It's this, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. If he has called you to something, he will equip you to do it. This means that when your heart turns on you, you have to stop and remember that the God who called you will not leave you high and dry. Now, some of you are probably thinking, okay, but 
what if I don't actually feel called to what I'm doing? What, what if I'm just kind of doing what was in front of me and, you know, I don't have this grand sense of like, this is God's purpose for me. It's just a job. It's, it's just my family. It's just my life. That's a great question. And I, I got two thoughts about it. The first is this. If you don't feel a, a sense of calling to what you're doing right now, it might be, it might be worth saying, I'm going to take some time to actually pray and talk to God and say, you know what? I, I want you to reveal to me, is there something that you want me to be doing that I'm not doing, and I, it's just because I haven't listened and haven't asked, do you have a call for me? But here's the second thought, and this is more important. It is important to know that most calls for most people do not come in some dramatic announcement, okay? It is not angels or voices from heaven or a burning bush that lets you know what God wants you to do. For most people, your calling is simply your circumstance. Now, think about the Garden of Eden. When, when Adam gets placed in the Garden of Eden, God says, all right, here's what this is. Here is your place, I just want you to take care of it. For most of us, that's how we get our calling. God decides where you, where you were born and when you were born and uh, what people are around you and the situations that you're in. You don't determine that. You just say, okay, this is where God placed me. And so that must be God's call, that in this moment, this situation, I respond how he would want me to respond. So for many of you, you say, you know what? I, I never felt called to be a parent. I just sort of ended up with kids. Like somehow it happened. It's like correlated with something and we'll figure it out sometime. But you are called, if you have children, to lead and to love those children so that they become the people God wants them to be. That is your calling, whether you feel called or not. You have a job. You say, look, I, I didn't feel called to this. In fact, I kind of wish I had a different job. But for whatever amount of time you are in that role, in that position, that organization, your calling from God is to lead and to serve and to work in such a way that it blesses those people, to do what he would do in that situation. That's your calling. Some of you are serving in a role in our church. Maybe you're, you serve in kids' world, and you think, well, pff, I don't feel this strong since like, God has made me to work with kids. I, I just knew there was a need, and I was willing to do it, and so I did it. But here's the thing. When you are with those children, when you're serving in that role, your calling is to invest in them for the sake of God's kingdom. That's your calling from God. The situation you're in. Now, he may take you to something else, but for the time that you're in that, that's your assignment from God. And if God has placed you there, he will equip you to do it. If he has called you to do something, he will not leave you without the resources to do it. And not only that, he is probably going to give you partners. God gave Moses his brother Aaron. And for a lot of us, we might have a unique job to do, but we are hardly ever called to do something by ourselves. God calls teams, not just individuals. And so a lot of you, you feel very discouraged and down in some situation. Your heart is failing you. And what God is telling you to do is, why don't you look around a little bit? I, I think I sent you an errand and you just sort of missed him. Leading is hard. We've got to be resilient. And the only way we're going to do that well is if we stay rooted in God's power, God's compassion, and God's call on our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, yeah, you are the one who has made us, the one who has called us, and the one who has placed us in the roles that we are in. And God, all, what we want is to simply thrive in these things you've asked us to do. So we need your help. God, I pray for each person here that you would let your power show up in whatever need they have in their life that you would fill them with your compassion so that they can love people around them the way you've loved them. And that you would give each person a confidence in their calling and the fact that you will equip them to do what you've asked them to do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.